What's going on, world? Welcome to Changing the Narrative. This is a show where we discuss everything from politics, philosophy, theology, social issues, economics, and more from a biblical perspective. The main goal of this show is to find truth. What is the truth about all these matters, and how should we respond once we have a greater understanding of the issues? Let's discuss. So today I interviewed Chad Jackson. He's one of the filmmakers of the documentary Uncle Tom, part one and part two. And we talk about what inspired him to make the film and the information in the film that debunks a lot of mainstream talking points when it comes to black history, the civil rights movement, race relations and more. Um, This is a sensitive topic. But I want you guys to listen the whole way through and uh, I do have a message at the end. So hopefully you stick around and listen to that as well. So without further ado, let's get started. Thanks for coming on the show today, Chad. Thank you for having me. So I recently just watched Uncle Tom Part 2 and um, I saw the first one as well. But um, the second one was definitely good. Um, I might have to say it was better than the first and it was probably more insightful and goes into a lot of uh, deeper history. Yeah. And um, we actually been getting that a lot. A lot of people have been saying that they prefer part two to part one uh, simply because it does go deeper. And that was our intention. So I'm, I'm glad people are saying that because rather than, you know, kind of repeating the same old talking points, which doesn't dismiss the uh, validity of them in part one. You know, we're quite proud of part one. It was a, a runaway hit. So, you know, we're, we're quite proud of that. But we did want to take our audience deeper. We did want to revisit some of the things uh, that we've been told uh, happened historically. And uh, it, it's important to understand the past to make sense of the present. Um, that's one of the things that mainstream historians uh, figured out is that if they can control the narrative of what happened in the past, then it, it it gives them the kind of leverage they need to push policy for today and the future. And so if we can actually revisit what happened in the past from an object from an objective perspective and look at, you know, were these things good or, or, or bad for not only black people or but for America at large, then it can help us make better sense of what's going on today and uh, and basically be more uh, intentional about shaping the future, if that makes sense. So before you started making this film, um, were you coming across like different types of information and sources that cause you to um, second guess the civil rights movement and era? or uh, like different books that would uh, just make you question the whole, um, I guess the main talking points that were um, being told to us? Yeah, so um, so in Uncle Tom 2, uh, we take an objective look at the civil rights movement. We take a objective look at some of the rhetoric uh, coming out of the mouths of the people that were told are race leaders or black race leaders. We take an objective look at the NAACP and W.E.B. Du Bois. And yes, we also take an objective look at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And the things that I, I would say caused me to, rather than, you know, 
going along with the okie doke of, of everything that I've been taught about all of these people and events, but rather to look at them objectively, rather to kind of look at the other side of them, so to speak, or the real side of them, I would say, um, was a number of things. One of which was a speech that was given by a man named Manning Johnson uh, from, I think, 1954, where he talked about his involvement in the Communist Party. He talked about some of the ways in which communists wanted to use racial tension and where there was no racial tension, sought to create racial tension so as to uh, give black people something to fight for, not realizing that they're fighting for a communist agenda. So he talked about that extensively, both in House committees as well as in that uh, speech, which is titled The Farewell Address uh, of Manning Johnson. People can find it on YouTube. And he, he basically blows a lid off of this whole ruse. And listening to that speech uh, really caused me to, to, to kind of second think, second guess a couple of things. Uh, and then I went back and read his book, Color, Communism, and Common Sense, where he was able to put a lot of this stuff into, into uh, just basically bring a lot of clarity to a lot of things that I've, I've been kind of wondering about, if that makes sense. Another thing was uh, when people look at the McCarthy era or the so-called McCarthy era, which is a time in American government where you had this senator. Sorry about that. I'm having a little tech issue. Yeah. Manning Johnson. Yeah. So I was talking about Manning Johnson. So uh, during the so-called McCarthy era, and I'll get to that in a brief moment, but uh, Manning Johnson was talking about a lot of the things that the media fought so hard to cover up over the, the past 60 or 70 years. Uh, it's, it's been called the McCarthy era by leftist historians and uh, professors and journalists, and they, th with the intention of trying to dismiss it altogether. They're saying that, well, Joe McCarthy, who was, the, uh, was a senator um, at this time, uh, found a communist under every rock. And he was he was so hell-bent against communism that he was wanting to accuse everybody he didn't like of being a communist. And he was reckless and this, that, and the other. And so because they were able to embody uh, all of their hatred into this one man, they've uh, dismissed all of the legitimate uh, communists who were discovered uh, during these committees. Uh, you had people like Manning Johnson who were blowing the whistle on communist infiltration into black activism in this country and to the government in this country, so on and so forth. And he wasn't the only one. There were other black communists or ex-communists who were coming out blowing the whistle as well, one of which was Julia Brown, who, you know, is at the end of Uncle Tom too. She's she's talking about how the communists were very much a part of the civil rights movement. And so Looking at these people and listening to what they had to say about uh, communist infiltration into black activism uh, really opened my eyes to a lot of what really happened in this country. And then lastly, there was a book written by a man named Harold Cruz called The Crisis of the Negro Intellectual. Uh, he was a, a professor in the 60s and 70s um, who very well documented um, or chronicled, I should say, um, the extent to which 
communists and Jewish communists had a relationship with a lot of the mainstream black activists uh, like Du Bois, like, you know, folks uh, who were part of the NAACP and including the early parts of the civil rights movement. And so I think that the communist piece of the civil rights movement is something that's typically ignored uh, because we've been so sensationalized and emotionalized about the civil rights movement. We look at it as something uh, that was necessary. And because of that, because it's so romanticized, nobody's willing to kind of take a, a few steps back and look at this thing and say, hey, what were the influences of this movement on the one hand? And what was the net result of this movement on the morale of black America on the other? And because nobody's willing to ask those questions and answer those, answer those objectively, uh, we're, we're, I feel like we're going in a, in a negative direction where a lot of black youth, because they have no connection with the prosperity and the integrity of their great grandfathers and great grandmothers, as we showcase in the film, you know, this, this brilliant part of black American history, because they have no, no connection with that. And they get their culture rather from what they see on television or what they hear on the radio, uh, which, you know, if, if we're being really serious is shaped by, you know, white progressive types, because they're the ones who are mm -hmm. at the head of the entertainment industry. So they get, you know, black youth get more of their identity from that than they do from what we show in the film, which, which is what their grandmothers and grandfathers were actually doing. Um, that that's that's quite troubling. Uh, Stalin said, "If I can take your history, I can take your country," and that's unfortunately exactly what happened uh, to Black America. Yeah. So, was the civil rights movement, in your opinion, was that a um, a communist creation or was that like a genuine movement where black said we we want to integrate and we have to stop segregation <clears throat> so according to harold cruz and others it was a communist ploy or, or it was at least heavily influenced by communists give me one second <clears throat> um the, the thing is like we have to start with the appropriate premise to answer that question Namely, the fact that, A, race relations between black and white were already improving significantly well before the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Mm. Um, in, the, in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, race relations were improving, especially in the South, uh, to the extent that racial friction is talked about. In most cases, it's extremely exaggerated. And I was able to confirm that on many different fronts. Uh, even the the KKK, um, the KKK, the the sound of that name in itself invokes uh, all types of feelings. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, uh, as it turns out, the KKK was nothing more than just a pyramid scheme uh, that was confirmed by a a Harvard professor, a black guy actually, uh, who's not political. Um, he's he's one of the few breeds of people. Um, like a Thomas Sowell, so to speak, who looks at the facts uh, and let the facts follow where the facts lead. And so with his research, he was able to discover that the KKK, uh, when it enjoyed its, its highest membership, if you will, which was the 1920s, um, basically there is no direct correlation between the 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 height of the KKK and lynchings, and to the extent that lynchings were recorded, 
uh, those numbers aren't completely accurate because on the one hand, you had lynchings that were the result of, of hate crimes. And on the other, you had lynchings that were the result of, of due process, namely, you know, somebody uh, uh, being sentenced to capital punishment by lynching as a result of being found guilty by a jury of their peers. Those people mm-hmm. included both blacks and whites. And so whenever you're conflating those two numbers, you get dishonest results. Um, mm. nobody's, nobody's looking at these things objectively. Now, that's not to say that the KKK was a good idea, but, what it, but we have to be honest about what it actually was. What it was was a kind of fraternity, and it was a pyramid scheme whereby the individuals at the top who were, in most cases, politicians, industrialists, both Republican and Democrat, it was started by the Democrat Party, but Republicans were in on it too. If we're being honest, again, we have to look at this. This this film isn't promoting the Republican Party. We're just looking at the facts of history, right? Um, so, yes, the Democrats started the KKK. They were very prominent in the KKK, but you did have a few Republicans trickled into it. Uh, the individuals at the top of the KKK uh, were charging dues to those who are at the bottom of it. And the people who are at the bottom paid their dues and considered themselves amongst the KKK uh, because they saw it as a means of getting good jobs, getting access to opportunities. It was a fraternity, so as so so to speak. Uh, when people realized that the whole thing was a ruse, they began to drop out of the KKK. And this was this would have been uh, the early 1930s when they began to drop out of it. Um, most of the men who were in the KKK had no interest in. Uh, uh, mobbing up and finding a Negro to lynch. Uh, But that's what Mm. the movies uh, try to make it out to be. And so So, I I say that to say this. I'm not trying to vouch for the KKK. I'm not trying to, you know, uh, 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 make them look like, you know what I mean, good guys, so to speak. Sanitize them. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not trying to sanitize them. It was literally a fraternity built on the back of hatred. That's what it was. So, So make no mistake about that. However, the the purpose of making them look like a bigger boogeyman than what they actually were is because it gives these historians and these dishonest scholars leverage to say, this is the reason why black people didn't enjoy any kind of upward mobility. But they're lying Mm. because black people did enjoy upward mobility. Uh, The literacy rate skyrocketed amongst blacks uh, in the space of time between the end of slavery and the 1940s. Uh, entrepreneurship skyrocketed. Uh, black people uh, uh, building their own neighborhoods. We like to talk about redlining. Oh, oh, black people weren't able to succeed because of redlining. No, black people were building their own suburban neighborhoods with white picket fences and, and well manicured lawns and trees and mm. painting their houses and, and taking care of their children and building great schools. This was black America. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until um, it wasn't until the 1960s, when uh, black people who were doing well were being accused of not being down with the cause or being Uncle Tom's sellouts and so on and so forth, uh, and intimidated to kind of join the ranks of the civil rights movement and this kind of protest politics, where we began to see a kind of decline in a lot of that um, a, lo- a lot of those gains that were made. Uh, but mm-hmm. this, this notion that blacks and whites weren't getting along again is, is, is extremely exaggerated because, uh, th- there was, there was legitimate harmony between blacks and whites, uh, before the 1960s. So, so 
Um, wh what was the name of the professor that you just talked about that talked about the KKK? You said he was a black professor. Uh, do you remember? Yeah. Or do you uh, remember the name of his book? I think his name was Robert. It wasn't a book. It was a study. It was a Harvard uh, study that they did, that they conducted. It was conducted in 2011. Um, give me one moment. I can bring it up. I think his name was Robert or something like that. Robert Professor. That's that's interesting. Um, Sorry, I, uh, his name is on the tip of my tongue. I just don't want to. In the meantime, um, I was going to ask you what. Okay, so you're okay, saying. So his name is. Um, so, so the report was done by Roland G. Fryer of Harvard University. And okay. Stephen D. Le yeah, and Stephen D. Levitt of the University of Chicago, and it was done in 2011. It, it was conducted in 2011. Mm -hmm. and it was called "Hatred and Profits Under the Hood of the Ku Klux Klan." Um, so the okay. whole report can be found. Um, it's 61 pages long, and uh, okay, yeah, it's uh, you can find it on uh, scholar.harvard.edu. Okay, great. So. Um, some people might say you were saying that race relations were improving and they were um, uh, racism, so to speak, was on a uh, decline. So what do you say to those who say, well, uh, without the civil rights movement, um, we wouldn't have been able to drink at the same water fountains or live in the same neighborhoods. I guess, is that the answer that these these things were already improving? So we didn't necessarily need a movement to intervene. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. So race relations were improving between black and white. Black people were moving into white neighborhoods uh, and vice versa, actually. You know, we don't talk about the fact that there were white people moving into black neighborhoods in Atlanta uh, prior to the 1960s. Uh, you ha you did have Jim Crow laws, which a lot of people are mistaken on what Jim Crow, Crow laws actually were. Jim Crow laws were uh, regulations that were implemented by counties uh, and states where they basically dictated how private owned businesses and public you know businesses uh, were to conduct their businesses with relation to s separating blacks and whites. And so Jim Crow laws were different depending on what county or state you were in across the South. Uh, much of these laws were being repealed well before the 1960s. They were falling off the books. And the reason they were falling off the books is because on the one hand, people realized that they were unconstitutional. Uh, on the other hand, they were economically unfeasible. And on the other hand, and on a th I guess if, you have three hands. Uh, it was a, a case where uh, as people began to realize the humanity of each other, because the thing is, tribalism uh, has existed since the dawn of humanity. So I call it more tribalism than I do racism. It's the, this idea of familiarizing yourself with people who share your uh, your features and your, you know, your culture, so on and so forth. And so to the extent that you don't know somebody, somebody uh, is an alien to you in terms of the language they speak, the color they are, the culture they inhabit, the whatever, uh, uh, that thing is, you know, we, we have a tendency to kind of recoil against that, which is different. And so, and so as blacks and whites had proximity to each other, and they were exchanging goods in the marketplace, so on and so forth, and began to become more familiar with each other, a lot of that tension began to break down. And as such, you did have P 
people moving into each other's neighborhood. And, and you did have uh, these this kind of repealing of these laws where you're not so much different than me. Why do we have these laws that separate us? You did have that happening. And so uh, mistakenly or uh, malicely, historians today uh, credit the civil rights movement for having repealed all of these laws when in reality, these laws were already being repealed well before the civil rights movement. Mm. And so this, this, uh, this verifies Booker T. Washington's prediction, which was that if we as blacks focus on our craft, if we focus on our families, if we focused on personal uplift, uh, regardless of what our circumstances are, regardless of who is saying what about us, if we focus on ourselves and uplifting ourselves, then the, and I don't want to butcher what he said, but he said that that relation, those race relations will naturally kind of heal themselves. And he was right. Mm -hmm. This was actually happening. Uh, Manning Johnson in his farewell address said, you know, uh, the communists went out of their way to create race issues. Now, what does mm -hmm. that mean for somebody to go out of their way to create race issues? Again, he said that the more race issues exist, the more the NAACP had an appeal for begging for funds. And it's, it's, it's important to note that much of the mainstream uh, journalists, uh, which were newspapers in the early parts of television, they were sympathetic to and in cahoots with organizations like the NAACP. And so in the same way that the NAACP had a vested interest in race relations existing, because so long as race, or I'm sorry, racial friction existing, because so long as racial friction exists, they have a, they have relevancy, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then too, of course, journalism, like journalists, they are always looking for a good train wreck to cover. And so again, it's, it's this kind right. of uh, a mutual interest, if you, if you will. And what that did was that so, exaggerated the extent to, to race relations. But yeah, to, to, sorry for the long-windedness, but yeah, to answer your question, uh, a lot of these, these, these uh, laws are already falling off the books. But because we, we accept and adopt uh, this false narrative that blacks and whites were, you know, hated each other and, and blacks were always under the, the thumb of the oppressor, so on and so forth, because we have an a ill-conceived idea of what the past was like, that naturally causes us to view the civil rights movement as a necessary thing. Uh, but it, it, mm -hmm. it negates, again, the, the legitimate racial gains on the one hand, and it also negates the fact that there were other people fighting uh, against the civil rights movement who were not connected to Marxists. And so that's also important mm -hmm. to note. There's so much there. Um, so if we were making a natural progression towards race relations before the civil rights movement, what was the ultimate purpose of, or what was the goal of the communists got involved with the civil rights movement if we were already on our way to healing our relationships with one another? What was their because, agenda? Because the thing is, the reason why, as I mentioned earlier, uh, blacks and whites were coming together was because they were in proximity to each other in the marketplace. Uh, the marketplace consists of private ownership of property and business and resources. Uh, that is diabolically opposed to the Marxist worldview. 
Um, mm-hmm. Marxists don't believe in private property. They believe that the government should own the means of, condru- of production. Uh, they believe that people should come together, not, uh, not in that venue, not under a capitalist uh, context, I guess you could say, right. uh, but rather under a Marxist context. Uh, the workers of the world mm. unite against the against the oppressor, against the uh, the bourgeois. That's what Marxists had have in mind. So, to the extent that blacks are making their own way through the marketplace, through private ownership, uh, that is something that's antithetical to the Marxist worldview. And so, mm. when you look at let, let's because uh, you you said it yourself, this is a lot, and and I understand that, but I'll, I'll try to slow it down and. Um, and, and be a little bit more clear and concise with what I'm saying. There was a uh, a pastor. His name was Dr. J. H. Jackson. Uh, J. H. Jackson was the president of the National Baptist Convention. The National Baptist Convention boasted eight million members uh, in the uh, in, in the United States of America. It was the largest black convention in the country. Now. Under the umbrella of this convention, you had many different churches, including Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is the church where Martin Luther King Sr. preached at. So Martin Luther King Jr., fresh out of college, uh, he was already radicalized. He was already believing in a, a kind of Marxist ideology. And he wanted to become the president of the, of the National Baptist Convention. And the reason he wanted to become the president of the convention is because he, like other young black activists, believed that the old guard, black leadership in the South were stymated, that they were uh, 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 acquiescing to the capitalist uh, uh, relics of America versus protesting against them. And so he wanted to become the president of the National Baptist Convention to, in a sense, uh, shift the trajectory of the convention to becoming a more uh, activist-oriented uh, church organization. Uh, but the reality was that because J.H. Jackson was so popular uh, amongst uh, Southern Blacks, Martin Luther King lost quite handedly. Um, he tried on a number of occasions to oust J.H. Jackson, but he, he kept losing. And so because he kept losing, uh, Stanley Levison, who was a, a Jewish communist advisor to Martin Luther King, said, well, what if we started our own convention? So they did. They started their own convention. It was called the Progressive National Baptist Convention. It didn't do very well. And so they started something called the Southern Leadership Conference. And then they later changed the name to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. The SCLC, which the acronym for Southern Christian Leadership Conference, was meant to be a, a kind of rival, if you will, to the National Baptist Convention. Now, what's the difference between Jackson and King in terms of their philosophy? Both of them wanted to see to it that Jim Crow laws were repealed across the board. Jackson's approach was in line and in keeping with Booker T. Washington, who died the same year that Jackson was born, 1915. Uh, he believed in productivity. In fact, there was a time where sharecroppers in the South uh, were struggling um, to get fair wages for the work that they were doing. Uh, the farmers kept cheating them. And so what the convention did under Jackson's leadership was they bought hundreds of acres of, of land, of farmland in the South, and they allowed these black farmers to farm that land for free, or, or rent-free, I should say, um, meaning they got to 
pocket all the cash that they were earning from their crops with the idea being that once you get enough money to buy your own land, you can go and buy your own land and become a farmer to where you're not having to depend on somebody else. These were the kind of practical things that mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Jackson were, was, was doing that was, again, in keeping with Booker T. Washington and in keeping with capitalism. Marxists don't right. like capitalism. They think that everything, again, ownership, means of production should be tied up in the government, which is what Martin Luther King believed. Uh, by the end of his life, he's talking about redistribution of economic power from the government. So these are the things that these are the this is the difference in praxis uh, between Jackson and King. Uh, so to the question of what was the purpose of the communists as far as involving themselves in the civil rights movement, it's government control of production. Now, what did the Civil Rights Act of 1964 did do? It gave government a bigger, more expansive role in private-owned companies, who you can hire, who you can fire, who you can serve, who you cannot serve. Now, we like to think about that as a good thing. We want the government to do that, but do we? Do we really? I mean, what if you're a Christian? Uh, me, I happen to be a, 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 a Christian business owner here in Texas. Uh, I have a construction company, a plumbing company. If somebody uh, came to me and said, Chad, I want you to, uh, I want you to uh, build a strip club for us. And I said, well, I can't do that because I don't, you know, I'm a Christian. I, I, I'm not going to give you my service because I disagree with the purpose of that building. Um, should I have the right to do that? Yeah. I think I should. Uh, in the same way, um, I believe in upholding a certain uh, moral culture in my company. Now, some people might disagree. Even Christians might disagree. Oh, you should be able to hire everybody. You shouldn't discriminate in that way. But if I want to hire only Christians to work for my company, I should be able to do that. It should be my right to do that. It's my company. I built it with my own hands and I should be able to dictate what happens with my own private owned company. Uh, however, there are people who don't agree with that. Now, do we really want the government to have that much control in our companies, because the thing is, uh, decisions are made every day in the consumer place, in the marketplace. There's literally four gas stations on a lot of intersections here in this country, and individuals have the ability to choose which one they want to, uh, to, to, to pump gas at. Now, what I'm saying is people should have the right to, uh, to vote with their dollars, so to speak. And if you want to be a knucklehead and not hire somebody because of the color of their skin, that should be your right to do so. But I should also have the right to fund your competitor versus you and, and watch you go out of business. I don't think it's necessary to always include the government in our, in our affairs, but it's necessary in the Marxist worldview to ever expand the role of government and to do so through social justice movements because they know that what you're doing when you give the government that much control, when you give the government that much power, you're in a sense priming the government to uh, to to over time inject uh, socialist, communist-minded people into government, and you already have the bed made, so to speak. And so it's it, it becomes a layup for people like AOC, who calls herself a democratic socialist, like Bernie Sanders, who calls himself the same, like Ilhan Omar, like all of these communist people who are getting into government. They love the, the, the fact that, we're, that each year that passes, we're expanding the role of government and we're doing so under the guise of progress and social justice. Mm -hmm. 
Um, man, I, I, I want to touch on King a little bit more, but I have some other questions. Um, so when you look at this, it's like the communists got involved with this issue and they were able to write history in a sense because when you when most people look back on the uh, civil rights movement and race relations, they pretty much give credit to the civil rights movement as being responsible for improving race relations. And you don't really hear much people talk about, well, race relations were already improving and it was it was the market that was allowing the the I guess the the principles of capitalism that were um, involved in allowing people to improve their race relations. You don't, you don't hear that side. You hear that it was really the government that was um, responsible for allowing these things in the civil rights movement. If it wasn't a gov- for the government, you know, um, these things would have deteriorated. So um, that's interesting. Um, yeah. What, how were, um, what, what were the conditions of black or what conditions were blacks in after slavery? Because often, you know, we hear that after slavery, like, you know, black people were pretty much destitute and and so forth. Um, in your research, what was life like for blacks after slavery? For some, it was uh, pretty destitute. Um, for others, here's the thing. Um, this goes back to preconceived notions and and I have to uh, premise certain things that I say because the narrative is such to where people have these kind of concrete uh, uh, notions or ideas of what certain things was, whether it be slavery, whether it be civil rights to where I have to, and I have to kind of deconstruct certain things in order to answer some of these questions. Right. And so, and so anybody with a with a brain can agree that the concept of slavery is wrong is bad right um however at the same time we we can't negate the fact that many people who were themselves slaveholders uh had sympathy for their slaves to where whenever these people went off uh they they went off with money in their pocket and a means of building a life for themselves. Uh, you have to understand that um, these were individuals who weren't sitting around on the plantation, uh, sleep uh, or not doing anything. They had skills. And so they were able to utilize those skills that they already had that were already baked in to make a living for themselves. And not only that, but um, a lot of them really, a lot of them already did have uh, uh, marketing skills because they were being rented off to other plantations and they, you know, money would ch- exchange their hands and so on and so forth. So they knew how to uh, market. They knew how to make money. They knew how to to build and make a, a living for themselves. It wasn't so much that they were uh, without skill, that they were without uh, determination, that they were without tenacity uh, to the extent where they needed the white man and they needed uh, uh, a government or a savior to come along and show them, you know, how to make a way. Many of them already knew how to make a way. Now, uh, there is something to say about the slave mindset, uh, uh, namely staying on a plantation, not, uh, because the chains keep you there, but because your mindset keeps you there. There is something to say about that. 
there were slaves who didn't want to leave the plantation after they found out that uh, that um, they were free because they were so in- institutionalized mentally to where they didn't they they were afraid of the world, the big bad bad world, and and going out there and and trying to to break the earth uh, uh, with you know by their own volition. Um, and so that's a question that can't really be answered um, with a one size fits all answer because there were different experiences that people had as a result of having been freed from slavery. Um, but I think it's worth noting. Uh, well, I, I, I can tell you what the answer is not. The answer is not that they were all destitute, that they were all, you know, um, um, set up for failure and, and left to die, so to speak. Um, you, you did have many people who were philanthropic in terms of assisting uh, black people and black organizations, one of which, one of whom was uh, uh, General Armstrong, who helped get Booker T. Washington on his feet and to help teach him the value of education, and then sent him on his way to Tuskegee, where he was able to to blow that thing up and and do so well in terms of taking on the students who were the sons and daughters of former slave owner or of former slaves and teach them, um, you know, the value of of the market and education and, and industry and entrepreneurship, uh, they were churning out tangibles. It wasn't all theory. When you, when you look at, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and what he was writing about, when he was talking about this man, uh, he was, his world revolved around theory. Whereas Booker T. Washington, his world revolved around results and tangibles. You, I mean, the, the, the building of Harlem, is a result of Booker T. Washington's teachings. The building of Black Wall Street was a result of Booker T. Washington's teachings. The, 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 the kind of spurring up, if you will, of all of these successful Black communities around the South were either the direct or indirect result of Booker T. Washington's uh, uh, uplift teachings. And so, and so you did need people, you did need voices like Booker T. Washington, like Frederick Douglass, who were uh, kind of breathing life so to speak, into these former slaves in terms of giving them the motivation and the courage and the tenacity they needed to really build uh, life for themselves and to not wait on somebody to give them a handout. Right. Uh, Booker T. Washington, you said he was educated by his slave master? No, no. Um, Booker T. Washington, after he was, I mean, slavery ended when he was still a boy and um, he sought like he sought education. Like he walked, okay. I think, miles to to go to a formal school to be educated. Okay. Um, I was watching a video by Larry Elder a few days ago, and it was about slavery. And I think he had a he played a clip of um, I think a historian saying that most whites didn't own slaves during that time. Right. right. Less okay. than three percent of whites owned slaves. Okay. And, and were there, um, I've heard that, or I've read that there were black slave owners as well. Yes, there were. Yeah, there were. Okay. So less than 3% of whites owned slaves. See, I, I never knew that. Um, why do you think that the main talking point is that basically, I mean, it's, it's made, it, it seems as if when we hear about slavery, that uh, it was a widespread thing in terms of whites just owning slaves, like it was just common practice. Why do you think that is? And that's on purpose. Again, the the thing is, there's strength in numbers. 
And to the extent that you can convince the white youth in particular, like your ancestors owned slaves, don't you feel bad about that? Wouldn't you have done something different? Wouldn't you have stood up and, and spoke out against that? And the idea being that since you can't go back in time, since you can't uh, uh, challenge your ancestors, what you can do is support new policies, uh, new anti-racist policies, uh, new equity policies, so as to ensure, A, that it doesn't happen again, and to B, uh, try to heal the wounds of the lingering and lasting effects and trauma of slavery that Black people experience today. And so what it does is it gives white people a is something to do. It gives them something to vote for, something to believe in, if they believe that they are the descendants of slaveholders. Uh, but the whole thing is is a bold-faced lie, uh, as we point out in the film, or as Larry point out, rather, uh, less than 3% of white people own slaves, and there were black slaveholders too. So what do you do with that information? Uh, what do you do with the fact that it was actual Africans who sold Africans into slave, slavery to begin with? And how slavery exists in Africa to this very day. And that it wasn't only Africans or whites, Europeans who were involved in slavery, but it was also, you know, Arabs and, and, and Asians too. And so what do right. you do with that information? Uh, because the fact of the matter is, when you consider all of these things wholesale, what you realize is that it's a, it's a sin problem. It's a problem of good versus evil. It has nothing to do with race because all races were, were involved in it. All races were on both sides of it. If you look at the vast uh, uh, history of it all, you know, slavery isn't something that just occurred in the 1600s and, you know, slaves were brought to America in 1619. No, it goes back further than that. And again, all races are included in having bought and sold slaves and having been slaves even, including white people. They were slaves as well across the world, right. around the world. And so, again, th they specifically uh, uh, and deliberately cherry pick the information they want to share. And all of it is agenda oriented. The agenda being, once again, to use uh, uh, American youth, because this stuff is being taught in schools uh, to, to, in a sense, indoctrinate them and to, and to prime them because they will be tomorrow's voters. So to prime them mm. in terms of what to think and how to view the past so as to give them some kind of guidance on how to move and shape the future. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Um, earlier, you talked about the Democrats being affiliated or the Democratic Party being affiliated with the KKK. So I've, I've often heard this, that the Democratic Party um, created the KKK or they were heavily involved with them. Um, so did they create the KKK or was like, were they, um, bedfellows? Were they, did they have a close relationship with the KKK? It was specifically the KKK started and there's different, uh, uh, I guess, um, accounts of how the KKK came into being. Um, but it was the most reputable account that I've seen was that it was a wing of the Democrat party in the South because it was meant to, <clears throat> intimidate uh, blacks who were being influenced by Northern Republican carpetbaggers who were 
kind of leading the way, if you will, or spearheading uh, Reconstruction in the South, where they were encouraging blacks to run for government office, uh, elected office, uh, where they were uh, bringing down uh, school teachers to help get these one-room schoolhouses off the ground, so on and so forth. And so because of the uh, very obvious um, fallout of war, uh, war creates friction, it creates bitterness, especially, you know, since the Civil War in particular was done. What, what, I mean, the, the whole purpose of the war was because of, of slavery and states' rights. Um, and so I don't really buy the whole states' rights thing because yeah, even though you're claiming that it's because of state right, states' rights, you're, you're wanting to uh, uh, push unconstitutional law uh, with your so-called states' rights. And so I am a proponent of states' rights. I am a proponent of local rights. Uh, however, I'm not a proponent of using those rights to, at the state level, uh, implement laws that are just outright unconstitutional. So, so I am of the belief that the war was because of slavery. And so naturally, if your dads and cousins and uncles died in this war that was because of slavery, and you see these black people who were freed as a result of that war, uh, getting you know special treatment, so to speak, uh, from these northern carpetbagger Republicans. Uh, naturally, at least it was naturally for them. Uh, you're going to want to try to to uh, uh, flesh out that bitterness in, in terms of intimidation, and that's exactly what they did with the creation of the KKK. Um, it was meant to intimidate. It was meant to uh, uh, be this kind of uh, uh, arm, if you will, of the Democrat Party. And they they did. I mean, there's this movie called um, The Free State of Jones or something like that, where uh, they showed uh, KKK members outside of like voting um, uh, polling places and so on. Uh, that stuff actually happened. Um, so, yeah, that, that's mm -hmm. that's basically at least what my my research brought up, if you will. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, why do you think that there's such a strong relationship with um, blacks and the Democratic Party, um, with along with this this history, despite having this history? Well, it's interesting. Um, the with with black people in America, uh, black people are very diverse in terms of culture. Uh, in terms of income, in terms of basic uh, uh, views and, and, and worldviews, depending on where you are in the country. I mean, my dad was born in the South, in Arkansas. He, I mean, there, there really is no difference between my dad and what you would think a redneck is in terms of, you know, cowboy hat and wranglers and horses and cows and like that's that's my dad my mom comes from a, a different background in oklahoma where you know she was more suburban if you will um you have the inner city you have uh you know urban black america you have the more sophisticated uh, upper echelon of, of the educated uh black bourgeois culture and so on and so forth so we're we're diverse and just as right. diverse as any ethnic group in this country. We're, we're diverse in every way except for how we vote. We vote 90 plus percent Democrat. 
Uh, I'm convinced that the reason that is, is because we've allowed ourselves to buy in to this marketing. We, we're specifically marketed to uh, with this uh, uh, race element. We're told what our history is, as I, as I said earlier, and we buy it wholesale versus uh, you know being able to see through it. There's all kinds of propaganda that is pushed by the media and by political parties that are specifically targeted to different groups, whether you're talking blacks, whether you're talking gays, whether you're talking Hispanics, whether you're talking Asians. I mean, they literally had the Stop Asian Hate campaign two years ago, but that didn't really move the needle in terms of in enticing a lot of Asians to vote Democrat 90%. Uh, so, so what mm -hmm. is it where we're all... Uh, uh, targeted as far as propaganda is concerned, but it works with blacks, whereas it doesn't work with these other ethnic groups. Uh, my mm. belief is that the reason it, it, it works with us is because this, this attempt to push such propaganda specifically to blacks is deep seated. It's not that there's something different about our brains than there are with Asian brains or Hispanic brains. No, that's not it at all. The, the, the issue is that, uh, it's simple, um, it's simple, uh, I guess, inception point, if you will, where the other propaganda may have started later, the propaganda to black started a long time ago. Again, the civil rights or the, uh, the, uh, NAACP was started in 1907, right? Uh, Martin Luther King came to prominence in 1957 and he gave the, I have a dream speech in 1963. And so you have these 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 uh, touch points, if you will, throughout history, where we're constantly being propagandized. Uh, mm. The difference between Booker T. Washington and and Martin Luther King, in particular, is that Martin Luther King encouraged blacks to cast down your bucket where you are, regardless of what your circumstances are. It's incumbent upon you to be a man, to be productive, to take care of your family, to have some respect about yourself. You need to be a man. Again, J.H. Jackson, who carried the baton, he's taught the same thing. You need to be a man. He said, and I quote, if you're not going to be a man, you may as well uh, uh, braid your hair and start wearing step-ins. Uh, coincidentally, that's exactly what we did in the 70s. Uh, but, you know, th this whole notion of you need to be a man was very prevalent in the black community. Whenever Martin Luther King came on the scene and he was interviewed by, I think it was NBC, what did he say about manhood? He said, we can't be men. We haven't been able to be men because our conditions, our conditions, we, they put us in the slums. They don't let us drink from the drinking fountains. They don't let us ride on the front of the bus. We haven't been able to be men, said Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. So you have a difference in terms of, of how we look at ourselves. The story you tell yourself is the most important thing about you. The, the story that you tell yourself is the most important thing about you. If you don't believe you're nothing, you're not going to amount to nothing. If you believe and if you're confident that you're, you can achieve anything, uh, you might fail along the way. But because you believe in yourself, your chances and your likelihood of being successful are much higher than the individual who tells himself he can't do it. And so we haven't been able to be men, said Martin Luther King, who the media called the moral leader of our day. And they put him in newspapers and magazines and on front pages. And we saw him on television and he gave the speeches and he was, he was made for TV. And he's saying, mm. we haven't been able to be men. And so what that did 
was that changed the psyche of Black America, that embittered mm. Black America. Uh, it, it caused the growth of the Black Panthers. These men who were wearing the Black berets and carrying the guns and wearing the Black and having the Panther patch, these were the sons and daughters of entrepreneurial-minded Black men and women. Their children rebelled against them. Their children rebelled against their way of life. They sought to become militants. They sought to become individuals who were going to uh, uh, fight the system and fight the power. And so they left. So the plumbing companies, the electrical companies, the mechanic companies that their dads and grandfathers started ended in the 1960s when we became militants instead. And so what did, what did the Black Panther Party do? Well, if you go along with us, we'll give you free breakfast. We'll give you free this. We'll give you free that. They basically tried to, to create microcosms of communism in the streets of Compton and the streets of, you know, a, a lot of these L.A. neighborhoods. Uh, they were trying to and, and they're still celebrated today for having found, uh, uh, I think it's WIC and some of these other, you know, more socialist-esque programs that de-incentivizes work ethic and, and men in the home. And so... My point is, we believe as black people who make money, who are middle to upper middle class or wealthy, that it's our obligation to look after uh, uh, those among us who don't have what we have, who haven't achieved what we've achieved. And so for that reason, we're going to vote for the party that is promising a way of life for the lower echelon of black America, not realizing that the handouts are what cripples them in the first place. Well, not, mm -hmm. it's not the thing that cripples them, but it's, it's part and parcel. The thing that really cripples us are values, a lack of values. We, when we lost our values, we've lost our way. And, um, I know that's, that's more than what you asked, yeah. but, um, but I, I, it's a, it's a very complex question. Right. Yeah. I did want to touch on that. Um, so in essence, what I hear is that um, the the communists and the Democratic Party have a better approach at marketing their message and their propaganda than the freedom movement? Um, a lot of times, I you know I yeah I see this a lot. You know they they do a lot of outreach in the community and they just they have a better approach when it comes to that than than um, freedom loving people generally speaking. Um, so I, I think that's something that, you know, needs to be corrected at, at some point. Before we wrap up, I do want to touch on King a little bit, but I had um, a question about the culture shift in the black community. Like in the film, in the uh, in Uncle Tom part two, you talk about how post-slavery and during slavery, like we our families were intact and we dressed a certain way. We believed in um, industry, we were productive and we, we carried ourselves a certain way. Um, fast forward to now we have um, the youth that is consumed in uh, hip hop culture and we dress differently and we conduct ourselves a little differently, some of us. Um, how did that culture shift take place? What was it? What, what do you think caused the culture shift? Well, it's it's it didn't only affect Black America; it affected America at large. And uh, Yuri right. Bizm Bizminov talks about this 
1984, and we obviously have it in our film as well. He talks about demoralization, um, um, ideological subversion through demoralization. And what that means is we have to shift ideology uh, in order to get our way in a given country. Um, the reality is that the black America that I talked about, the culture of black America that, I, that I'm talking about and that we showcase in the early part of our film uh, was antithetical to communism. Um, they didn't want it. They didn't want any parts of it. These were Christian people. These were uh, uh, entrepreneurial-minded people. These were people who were determined, and there was no place for communism in that culture, uh, specifically speaking of black America. And so the way that cultures persist is through our children. The idea being that I impart my culture to my sons and daughters, and then they carry that culture into the future. And so what the communists figure out, figured out is if we can get to the children and if we can indoctrinate the children and sway them to where they're rebelling against their parents, that creates a vacuum wherein we can implement our culture, our ideals, our worldview. And that's exactly what happened. And I would pinpoint the 1960s, the latter part of the 1960s at least, as being the incision point of the demoralization of America. You know, we like to make fun of today, like, oh, the the old the adult generation in the 1960s, they hated rock and roll. They hated the blues. They hated all these things. But they had a point. You know, they had a point about uh, the sexualization of music in the mainstream and, and television and so on and so forth. And Mad Magazine was introduced. Uh, what it did was it gave these young suburbanites, black and white, a lens into the dark side uh, where you had the emergence of the hippies and the free love movement and the second wave feminism and black militancy and all these different movements, these radical movements. You had the Weather Underground, which was a predominantly white organization. You had SNCC. You had all these different you know, youth movements. Now, what did all these youth movements have in common? What they had in common was that they believed in Marxism, whether directly or indirectly. I say directly because a lot of them admitted to being Marxist. And I say indirectly because a lot of them, even though they may not have known what Marxism was, they were definitely saying a lot of market Marxist talking points. And they wanted a fast-paced revolution. Now, they didn't get their fast-paced revolution, but what they were able to do were to graduate uh, their school from their schools and then to go out and disperse into society, uh, taking professions, taking jobs and entertainment and journalism and corporate America and colleges and universities, so on and so forth. And they were able to get at the heads of those, those institutions and gradually shift the cultural undergird of America to the point of where we are today. Now, how did they affect or shift or change entertainment? specifically uh, entertainment that's targeted to black people. Well, as you get into the 70s, you have the introduction of black exploitation. This is a genre of film that glorifies hustling and pimping and gangbanging and drug use. Uh, and that became popular, unfortunately, in some of the inner cities. A lot of people think that poverty equals crime. Poverty doesn't equal crime. 
my dad comes from a, a lower income uh, 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 part of Arkansas that is under or was under at the time the federally recognized uh, uh, line of poverty. So my dad came from poverty. Now, there wasn't drug use and, and alcoholism and crime in the community where my dad grew up. The difference isn't isn't poverty and what's in your bank account. The difference is values. Values transcend income. There's people who are rich with values. There's people who are poor with values. There's people who are poor, who are degenerates. There are people who are rich, who are degenerates. The common denominator is values or the lack thereof, not what's in your bank account. Uh, but the reality is that to the extent that some of these lower income communities were targeted through entertainment, uh, they began to kind of take on some of the relics of the entertainment industry. And then you had the crack epidemic, again, an offshoot of black exploitation. And it, you know, there can be a safe argument as to the government's involvement and in that. I won't really get into that, but I think there's some reputability to to that to yeah. that argument. Um, and then as you get into the 90s, again, you have the emergence of gangster rap, uh, which is an offshoot of black exploitation to this very day, where you have all these young men, they call themselves mumble rappers. They're, they're talking mm -hmm. about jewelry and diamonds and, you know, they look like, well, I won't really get into that, but, but they're, they're constantly <laughs> pushing this image of demoralization and mm -hmm. degeneracy and decadence to black youth. Again, constantly uh, uh, communicating to black youth that this is who you are. This is what your culture is. And the more this stuff happens... The, the much wider the chasm and the disconnect between what our great-grandfathers and what our great-grandmothers are doing. So demoralization right. is, is the reason we had this cultural shift. And again, it didn't only affect white people or, or black people, it affected America at large. Uh, but again, there's no, um, there's no statisticians or data analysts who are honest enough to look at the ways in which uh, demoralization and the 60s revolutionary movements had an implication on uh, on groups other than black people. Yeah. Um, how much time do you have left? Uh, I got like five minutes. Okay. All right. So, you know, I often you hear about white supremacy being blasted through um, mainstream media like MSNBC and CNN and all these, these stations. And, um, you know, um, there would be times when I would watch the news. I have relatives that watch those stations and you just constantly hear about it. And, you know, when I walk out of my door, it's like a completely different uh, experience. So ultimately what, what I see is that I see the mainstream media basically changing people's perceptions of reality in a sense. So like when they talk about, you know, they make it seem as if you're going to be a victim of white supremacy or you can't jog around your neighborhood because you're going to be hunted down. But then, you know, for me personally, when I walk out of my door, I'm not being hunted. I'm, I'm, I basically do whatever I want. I'm able to engage in business with people of all different cultures. But yet when I talk to some of my relatives and friends, they're like, oh my goodness, don't, you know, stay inside. And uh, they're so worried about white supremacy and always talking about the evil white man and this, this, and that. And so when you're talking about the propaganda earlier, um, you know, it does remind me that it is strong. It can really change your perception of reality. Like if you experience the sky being blue every day, but you watch the news and it tells you that it's black, you 
can shift your thinking into thinking that the sky really is black, even though you really see that it's blue every time you walk out your door. So I just, I'd want right. to touch on that. Um, lastly, um, when it comes to MLK, let me, I, I, I'll say this over the years, I've been doing some research on King and, um, I've been coming up with some, some dark things and, uh, I found some, some things that weren't necessarily favorable to what I've been told about him. And, um, I've started to question his image. Um, was he, I, I, I've found information about his theology that didn't really line up with a uh, biblical doctrine, uh, plagiarism issues, infidelity issues, the relationship with the communists and things like that. Um, what would you say about King? Who was he? I know I don't, you don't have to be long-winded or anything, but is he what we were told he is? Absolutely not. Um, and that's unfortunate. Uh, King is a man who grew up in a church family, a middle-class family in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, a, a family that, again, was a byproduct of the culture I talked about earlier that was headed by men like Booker T. Washington. Um, Martin Luther King was born in a very comfortable uh, environment. Um, he was gifted. He was very smart. And he knew he was smart. And as such, he had a little bit of pride that went along with his intelligence. Uh, he rejected the deity of Christ by age 12. Uh, he graduated and went to college by age 15. Um, while he was growing up in his house, he had a front row seat to the oratory skills of his father. Um, his dad was a very gifted pastor and preacher and orator. And so Martin Luther King picked up on that. He, he, he uh, gleaned from that, if you will. He said that by the the time he went to college, he already accepted the liberal interpretation of the gospel, which is to say he didn't accept the gospel, um, but rather uh, a hollow and deceptive philosophy, which was a version of the so-called gospel. Um, he, While he was in school, uh, he went to Crozer Seminary. Um, there were letters that were exchanged between some of his professors, and you probably came across this if you say you did uh, some research on him where they basically, like these professors, they were Marxists, uh, but they used the gospel or they used the Bible to try to, um, to try to find a way to kind of merge the two, if you will. And there's a letter, and I can send it to you, where one professor says to the other that Martin Luther King, and this is before he graduated from seminary, he said Martin Luther King has what it takes to bring our philosophy to the Negroes in the South, unlike uh, the other pastors who tend to do what Negroes do, whatever that's supposed to mean. I mean, you can use your imagination mm. and guess. Um, so he was invested in Martin Luther King. He was, uh, he had an agenda. Um, he had in his inner circle, these were the men who were closest to him in terms of his advisors, Bayard Russon, uh, Stanley Levison and Clarence B. Jones, all three of whom were his were his speechwriters. Martin Luther King barely wrote any of his speeches. He, uh, the reason why his speeches were written the way that they were written, 
uh, in order to make Martin Luther King appear as a moderate or somebody who just loved America and wanted to see the Constitution played out, so on and so forth. That was deliberate. Um, it was uh, the idea being to use certain symbols of patriotism, of religion, of decency uh, in your rhetoric so as to get into the good graces of the masses. Uh, Walter Lippmann talks about this in a book that he wrote in 1922 called Public Opinion. It says, once you get into the good graces of the, of the public, once they see you as somebody worth listening to or somebody who is trustworthy, you can then begin to uh, interject, not interject, the, the proper word would be inject, uh, a campaign, a policy where the people will get behind, not because they are interested in the substance and the details of that policy, but because they trust you. And so that's exactly what happened with uh, Martin Luther King, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Uh, like I said earlier, it expanded the role of government and private-owned companies and property. And then from there, he went on to the Poor People's Campaign, basic income for everybody, redistribution of wealth, all of these Marxist uh, 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 proponents that were in these new policies that he were he were pushing that he was pushing. So to the extent that you have people who say, oh, he, he wasn't radicalized and he didn't become a leftist till the latter three years of his life, there's no, that, that, that claim is not based in facts. The fact of the matter is if you read his papers dating as far back as, you know, him being a teenager, you'll realize that he has always believed in Marxism. He always interpreted uh, uh, the world in that way. And so whenever you realize that, the rest becomes blatantly clear. Namely, that um, to the extent that he was a so-called Christian pastor, all of that was a, a guise or a ruse, if you will, uh, in order to, it, it, was a, it was effectively a Trojan horse um, mm -hmm. used to uh, implement something a lot more sinister. So that's not to be, I, I don't think he's to be trusted for that reason. Um, the Bible says to not be taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophies. So my question mm -hmm. for your audience or for the church is, what is it about what Martin Luther King was saying uh, when compared to the Bible was actually biblical? Um, yeah. And not only that, but from a policy perspective, can we legislate love? Can we legislate people into loving each other? Uh, the answer to that question yeah. very obviously is no, but but what was happening uh, can happen in, in that you have people who are naturally familiarizing themselves with each other and through uh, uh, their civic responsibilities beginning to break down these laws uh, 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 just in the, you know, under the Constitution without any kind of ulterior motive. What we got from the 1964 uh, Civil Rights Act was was so-called uh, uh, relieving race issues, but it had a ulterior motive. It had a, a, a lot of jargon in there that uh, were quite the opposite of what we thought we were getting. It's the same thing as, as this new, uh, uh, what do they call it, Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, now, mm -hmm. from the name of it, you think that you're getting inflation reduction, but when you read the language of the bill, you get uh, all of this language that's, that allows the government to spend more money 
uh, thereby doing the opposite of redu- reducing inflation. And so, and so we have to be very wary of you know public policy that's given to us under the guise of social justice, because ten times out of ten, you're you're not getting what you think you're getting. Yeah. Um, lastly, I you know what you said. It kind of reminds me when I was um, doing some research, I found out that King. Um, accepted an award from Planned Parenthood. And I thought about Margaret Sanger's quote about um, if word goes out that we want to exterminate the blacks, you know, the minister is the one that can straighten that idea out. And so, it, you know, it, it it leads me to believe that some of these people with, with these um, agendas hire, purposely hire um, blacks to use as a face to uh, market their agenda. But um, lastly, um, what... What sources and books can, oh, I want you to plug your film too, but what sources are and books can people go to and read uh, to get more information about what we've uh, discussed? Yeah. So um, uh, the book I used earlier or, or talked about earlier rather was The Crisis of the Negro Intellectual uh, written by Harold Cruz. Um, also referenced uh, the study that was done by Roland Fryer. Uh, from 2011 uh, called Hatred and and Profits Under the Hood of the Ku Klux Klan. I recommend all six volumes. I think it's either six or seven volumes of uh, the King Papers, the Stanford King Papers. Um, That's where you can find a lot of his own papers, his own words, so on and so forth. Um, There's a a lot, really, that I would recommend. Um, We have, uh, right now I'm compiling... uh, a, a citation page that I hope to put on the website soon where people can go and use as a resource for everything that we, we talk about in the film. But yeah, okay. UncleTom.com is where people can go and find the film. Uh, you can watch part one there. Uh, but as you said earlier with part two, uh, a lot of people are saying that it's better than part one. Um, so that's a, that's a feat that I was hoping to accomplish. And I think, I think we did a pretty good job at that. Uh, a lot of people might be maybe deceived by the name Uncle Tom 2, thinking that I have to watch part one to get to part two. Uh, but the reality is part two is really a film that stands on its own. So you can watch, okay. you know, you can watch them out of order, in order, however you want to do it. Okay. Are you getting any coverage from any uh, black news outlets? Um, uh, we we got a handful Um I hope to get more, but I don't, I'm not trying to rush anything. I think that this is one of those films that's going to develop a following or develop traction as time goes Mm -hmm. on. This isn't a film that's made for an election. Like we did, we weren't trying to rush it for the midterms or, you know what I mean? We didn't want to get it out before, you know, the 2024 election. No, this is a film that has shelf life. It, uh, it's going to stand the test of time. It's going to age very well. So, so yeah. Absolutely. And when is the next one being released? Any dates for that? Uh, we don't have any dates uh, yet, but it's in production. So okay. that, that hey, information gonna... is forthcoming. Okay. You're going to break a lot of hearts with that one. I can already tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not done in malice. It's done in love. You know, no, um, no. it's done for the sake of truth. So, Yeah, I know. Absolutely, man. This is a story that needs to be told. It's, it's amazing, man, how much history that we weren't untold in how brainwashed we become over the years. But Chad, I want to thank you for your time, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed this. Absolutely. 
Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, so much information there. Again, I really challenge you to go watch the film and uh, see it for yourself and soak in all the information in it. Um, I just want to end by saying that, you know, my intention is not to offend anyone because I know some people are very sensitive about these issues. But um, after watching the film, I was surprised at how much information I didn't know. Um, earlier, I made the point about the media and how the media can change people's perceptions of reality. And I use the example of white supremacy. And, you know, I know people are constantly, well, I know people that are constantly, um, personally, that are always blaming whites as being the cause for black people's misfortunes, etc. And um, when I watch channels like MSNBC, you know, they, they make it seem as if white supremacy or the white man is out to get you and, you know, you need to look over your shoulder and they continually pump fear, especially like during the uh, George Floyd riots and I think it was Ahmaud Arbery and, you know, they were just pumping so much fear into um, the public mind so as, you know, to make you think that, well, if you're black, you know, you, uh, you can't go jogging and things like this and, Speaking from personal experience, I could say that um, when I walk out of the door every day, I don't face these threats. Not saying that these things don't exist, but, um, you know, th this is not something that I'm worried about on a day to day basis. But when you watch the news, they make it seem as if, you know, there's like imminent danger from being black or there's you're gonna face some threat every day from a white person or something like that and um you know i just ask you guys i mean do you think the media is is being honest about that um you know i've always said that racism doesn't rank high on the list of things that threaten my life you know i'm, I'm more worried about like heart disease uh cancer life expectancy which actually uh recently just decreased in the U.S. Um, and I don't think it's from white supremacy. But, you know, the media will make you think differently. And uh, another thing we talked about was uh, Booker T. Washington, who he had a, a sense of uh, self-reliance and um, a do-for-self kind of attitude. And I think that reliance on God and self-motivation can take you a long way. So, you know, if racism is prevalent the marketplace won't be convenient which is why i believe you can't have a functional society if racism is systemic or or um prevalent and what i mean by that is you know if i need to buy food and the person selling me the food is racist and i don't like that person either i mean do you think um that he cares about what color i am if I'm paying him for the food, and do you think I care <laughs> about what color he is, even if I might hate him? Um, you know, if he's selling me food when I'm in a time of hunger. So in order for us to engage in commerce and, ex and an exchange of goods and services, we're going to have to get along and we're going to have to have some kind of relationship with one another. You know, so th this is why like it, racism is just not a convenient thing as much as they blow it up and make it seem as if like america is just this one big 
you know glob of racism on the on the map i mean it, it just in reality these things don't really pan out as they say they do um another thing in the film that um what the film talks about is blm black lives matter and the people that fund some of these movements and leaders and the film mentions that uh some of these people funding these movements are white communists and um you know years ago i read a interesting article during the uh the riots i think it was the george floyd riots and um it said that it was talking about uh, there was a section in the article that mentioned the riots in the 60s and comparing them today. And around that time in the 60s, these riots were being funded by the Carnegie and Rockefeller foundations. So I want you guys to ask yourself, why would millionaire or billionaire wealthy elite organizations um, philanthropists be funding organizations with blacks that riot in the streets i'm gonna post an article there um that that talks about that so you guys can read it for yourself another thing that i thought was interesting um that i'm gonna post is this documentary called uh, anarchy usa communism in the name of civil rights and there's a lot of footage in that documentary from the 60s and, and part of the description of the uh, film reads and i quote this is not about black versus white it's about what led up to the u.s race riots in the 1960s how and by whom they were organized and what they were intended to accomplish end of quote um i really think you guys should check it out because when i saw it and I, I think I watched that during the uh, the time of the George Floyd riots, and I was like, "Wow, this is crazy." I mean, it was exactly, it was it was pretty much the same thing that was going on at the time, you know, when when we had the George Floyd uh, protests. It was like the same thing in the sixties. It was it's crazy. It's it's like prophecy. Um, and lastly, um, I'll say that you know, as I get older, I have started to question. A lot of popular opinions about history and ideologies um, when I start digging in and doing some research. And, you know, regarding uh, Martin Luther King, um, I remember going to school years ago on Martin Luther King Day. And there was a student that asked my teacher, how come we don't have Martin Luther King Day off? And the teacher responded, because he was a communist. And I always wondered what that was about. And I, I think I asked my uh, my grand grandfather at the time uh, what a communist was because I, I didn't know what that was. Um, and as time went on, I, um, I dug up some interesting things about Martin Luther King that made me question who he was and who I was taught he was or what I was taught about him. And um, some things didn't add up. I'll admit, you know, uh, and I, I might have to do a show on that and get some some information together. Um, and I'll, I'll post a brief video about that as well. So you guys can see a little information about what I'm talking about. Um, but th this was a while back and I started coming up with some information that really didn't paint like such a great picture or didn't live up to the message or the picture that was presented about him like in the mainstream media 
And, um, you know, I, I'm not trying to tear down anyone's heroes or or hopes, you know, but I think that we need to be honest about history and ourselves and just look at things objectively and, and just soak it in. Take the good with the bad. Um, I'm going to leave with a couple scriptures. Um, I've been reading. I'm in the book of Zechariah right now. And um, oh, one, one more thing I want to mention is uh, in, in regards to the civil rights era, uh, me and Chad or Chad and I talked about he, he talked about the government getting involved with the civil rights movement and how sometimes government can just mess things up. And, you know, think about it today. Look at civil rights now. Right. Like they're using transgender individuals or individuals who identify as transgender as um, being discriminated against. So they're applying the, the civil rights legislation to, let's say, a man who thinks he's a woman and he wants to go use the woman's bathroom and this, this and that, and he shouldn't be discriminated against. So you see, you know, how government can kind of make things a little messy. And um, it's just interesting to see, like, how civil rights is, is being applied now. But um, like I said, I was reading... Uh, Zechariah um, 8.16 in the Old Testament. And um, it says, uh, these are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render sound judgment in your courts. Um, and I think he was addressing um, Israel at the time. I don't, I, I hate to uh, butcher scripture. Um, and, and reading just one particular verse, you know, sometimes because sometimes things are out of context. But um, he was addressing the uh, people of Israel and First um, John five nineteen says, uh, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And um, I use that scripture because when I think about information i think about history and this information that's given or fed to the public mind and when we were talking about martin luther king you know i was as he was telling me some of this information i was thinking like um i mean like how is it that we have been so ingrained with a particular story about a movement or someone or you know, certain things that, that took place. How, how, why do we have a view at times that is contrary to reality and what actually happened? Like, how is it that the public mind doesn't even know some of this information that he spoke? I don't, I didn't even know some of this stuff, you know, and I'm like, I'm just amazed that uh, we could just have so much left out, you know, and I really do feel like there's a lot of deception um, so that's why I just read that scripture because, you know, basically it, you know, saying that the devil does have a lot of influence and control. And, um, we see this today. I mean, if we look at, you know, look at the media and, and look how they twist things. Um, and so I want you guys to think like 20 years from now, how do you think, uh, a movement like Black Lives Matter or a president like Joe Biden or Trump will be presented to the public mind. How, how are they going to present? How are historians going to present 
those things 20 years from now? You know, if, if let's say a particular individual was bad and he had a horrible reputation, are those historians 20 years from now going to repackage that person and present him as somebody different? You see? So I think we need to look back into history and ask ourselves, have uh, particular movements or particular individuals been repackaged for us today? Just something to think about. Um, anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed the show. I'm going to uh, leave some links in the show. And uh, I challenge you guys again to watch Uncle Tom 1, Uncle Tom 2. Personally, I would start with Uncle Tom 2 and then I would watch 1. I mean, Uncle, I'm going to I'll probably watch it again. It's really insightful. And uh, check out the documentary. I'm, I'm listing in the links. Um anarchy usa as well as another video and some articles all right peace